take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 14. This is our brief five-part series on Jesus' use of the phrase, O you of little faith. We're measuring our faith. How big is your faith? The third installment is Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. We've already discovered that all five of these statements that were not very, can I say, positive statements, were all made to Jesus' 12 disciples. They ones who walked with him and heard his ministry and all of his preaching and his parables and saw the miraculous things, but they were the ones who were constantly being told they had little faith, yet In contrast to that, throughout Matthew's gospel, there are others who, at times even Gentiles, women, others who weren't as highly esteemed in that culture, uh, were told they had great faith. And with that in mind, let's read the text for ourselves. Matthew 14, 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And it says he made them. It is actually that. It's a word that is normally used of coercion or force. In other words, he wasn't giving any options. This was a purposed event. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. This and the story in chapter 17 in the Mount of Transfiguration, I'll tell you more about it in a little bit, are the one episodes, two episodes in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is pictured as being alone, and there's a purpose for it. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, literally about 31 or 2 stadia, so quite a bit off the shore. And it was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, torturous is the word, literally, to torture someone. It's how bad the winds were. But when the disciples, I'm sorry, in the the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Remember the sea from last week, we said, was, and that day the common thought was that the sea was the place where all the evil spirits and demons and the evil things of this world all were out on the sea. So thinking he's a ghost, not seeing him up close yet, isn't a surprise. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart or courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, it literally should be since it is you, there was no doubt who it was at this point. Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Second use of that word. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, here's our phrase, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. All right, I've done this test to two people who were my guinea pigs before tonight. Pastor Dave and my wife. (laughs) So here's, don't get too frazzled or nervous about this. But I want you to try to, and don't do the whole thing if you don't really think you can. But just give me at least a part of it, all right? 
we're going to say, how can we describe the entire story of the Bible from the beginning and the end, and the only thing you can use to describe it are the mountains that are in Scripture and the events that took place there. Most of the mountains are named, but some of them are not, all right? And I'm going to start you with this without giving you a lot of explanation. Most people think that the Garden of Eden was on the side of a mountain, that Eden was a space on the mountain. And the reason they think that is Ezekiel 28, 13 through 16 calls it the holy mountain of God and talking about uh, Satan who was there and he knew all about that and he was there in that garden as well. But they call it the holy mountain of God and also because a river flowed out of it and then at the bottom of the basin of the mountain spreading into the valley, it tailed off into four different types of rivers and each had a name. So starting with that assumption that the Garden of Eden itself, the very Bible begins with God meeting people on a mountain, right? How would you go on to tell the rest of the story at key places in Scripture from the, there to the end of the Bible? How, what mountains would you use to describe it and how would you do it? Give me one at a time if you like or as much as you think you can go. Mike. Okay, Ararat. Tell me about it. Okay, so God punishes, right, the world and has Noah's family to start off another new creation, as it were. And so we see early on in Genesis that Mount Ararat is another place because the ark is there. God meets with them. They get off and they start everything over, as it were, right? So Mount Eden, if we could say that. Uh, We could say Mount Ararat. What else? What's next? Key ones. Stay in Genesis if you can think with me. Yes. No. Yeah, we're going to come to that one. Excellent. No, that's good. Yes, thank you. Mount Moriah, and that's what happened there. Okay, good. We learned about sacrifice, and that's where Abraham offered Isaac to God. Right, so we got the three mountains, all right, and we're still in Genesis, and now we're going to go to Jamie because she was next and got it right. Yeah, Mount Sinai is Exodus. So now we have God making a covenant with his people at the mountain, and remember how terrifying it was, and the thunder, and the lightning, and the fire, and you couldn't even get too close. If you touched it, you would die. Right? Hebrews 12 talks about the contrast between that mountain and the one that you can touch. Does anyone remember what that one's called? Yeah, we're going to get there. New Testament. What else? Now, keep going. What's the next one? Jamie, do you have another one? Mount what? Yes, Mount Carmel, right? Mount Carmel is the prophets. So we got, what happened on Mount Carmel? Elijah. Yes. Yep, that was the choice in the days of the prophets, God or Baal, right? Even before then, there was Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel, right? And they, remember Moses stood between there in Deuteronomy and said, choose the day, blessings, this mountain, or cursing, this one. Remember, he gave them a choice. Which one will it be? And he stood between, and they had to stand 
on which side they wanted to be on, right? It was a choice they were making. But those were two mountains there as well. And then you got Mount Carmel and the prophets. What else? Let's go to the New Testament. What about the Gospels? What about Jesus? Did he have any mountain ex- top experiences, if I could say? Yes. Sermon on the Mount. Right. Excellent. What's, what's another mountain that was important in his life? Go ahead. You guys said the same time. Same thing? Mount of Olives. Yes. Yes, the wilderness. Yes, remember when he was in the wilderness being tempted? What did Satan, what was one of the temptations? Where did he take him? Up to an exceeding high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Remember that? Mountains. What else? Fast forward. How does the story all end? What about Revelation? Yes, Mount of Olives is going to come back. What, what more? Is, what is the Bible? Does anyone remember what describes in Revelation 21 and 22 the New Jerusalem? Yes, it's a high mountain. The whole thing starts off, it's on a high mountain. So you could really think, if you really wanted to, that you could say one of the motifs that structures the Bible from beginning to end that God wants to show us is mountains are absolutely crucial, right? I'm going to give you a little definition. If you want to take this further and study more on your own, it's called biblical theology is what it is we're doing tonight a little bit. And the mountain top or mountain experiences are a lot of things, but the main thing is God gives revelation there, okay? Revelation is what takes place. It's one of the main features of what mountains are all about. And you can see that because Moses was on Mount Sinai, not, not in chapter 20 when the Ten Commandments were given. That's true, but that was revelation. But it also, what else happened at Mount Sinai in chapter 3 of Exodus? He was at the, yeah, he's at the burning bush, which was the first revelation that God gave that he was I am. Right? So the Bible always, who, revelation, who was God? Mount Carmel. The fire came down. The God who was really God brought the fire down. It was a revelation that only God could do that. And by the way, which is a crazy story, because Baal was the thunder and lightning God, and that was his territory. And when deities were considered local, and that was his specialty, but he couldn't come up with it. He, could not also, he couldn't bring the lightning, fire, and he couldn't bring the rain. Those were his two number one specialties. He couldn't do either, and God does both. Why? Because the revelation is... He's the real God, not Baal, right? So you can see that when you start reading the Bible, right, um, there's a revelation. It usually takes place almost at every time there's an experience between God and man at the mountains. Okay, ready? Almost done. Then we're going to actually look at this text. Matthew's gospel could be structured just like we did for the whole Bible. The whole, Bible, the whole gospel of Matthew could be structured by mountain scenes. Can you tell me what they are? We've said a couple of them, not thinking about Matthew particularly, but what's the very first one? I'm going to help you out. Matthew chapter 4. We said it already. I'll start there with you. You have the mountain of temptation because Jesus was taken up to a high mountain. Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world on a mountain, right? It was, he revealed to him. It was a revelation. See, here's all the kingdoms, Jesus. You can have them. 
if you submit to me. That was the first one. Sandy, I think, said chapter 5. Matthew, number 5, second, second one. There's seven mountains in Matthew. Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off by going on a mountain, and he sits down, and everybody gathers around him. That is the second one. The third one, our text, Matthew 14. Did you read it? When we read it, did you see it? And immediately he got in the boat, and then after he dismissed the crowds, where did he go in verse 23? He went up on a mountain. We don't know the name of it, but we, we've learned something, though. See, if we know this thematic phrase that goes throughout the Bible, we're going to know something about this story in particular. What do we say it means when you go up on a mountain? There's going to be a what? A revelation of who God is and what he's like. And we're going to find that out. And we're going to see what God is like when we look at Jesus in this story, which is crucial to the whole understanding of the entire uh, story. The fourth one, if you want to write them down, Matthew chapter 15. He goes up on a mountain and he, the feeding of the 4,000. Matthew 17, number five. He goes up on the mountain. He is transfigured. Remember that? So there's a revelation. Jesus is as white as lightning. So there's another mountain showing another part of who God is. Number six, we've already said it. Matthew 24, the Mount of Olives. Jesus goes on up the Mount of Olives and he gives the whole Matthew 24 and 25 scenario. I'm going to stop before I give you the seventh one and pause for a minute. Another and crucial point about understanding the structure of Matthew, right, is not only the seven uh, mountains that we're looking at, but the beginning of the mountain scenes in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, write it down, he gives how many Beatitudes? Do you know how many? How many Beatitudes are on the Sermon on the Mount? Eight. All right? At the end of the book... Toward the end of the book, Jesus' last part of his ministry. In Matthew 23, he gives cursings. And the English word is woe, which doesn't mean like stop your horse. Woe is the prophetic word for condemnation or judgment from God. Woe to you. And he gives it to the religious leaders in Matthew 23, which, by the way, he did on near a mountain as well. So remember I told you earlier in the Old Testament that Moses stood between the two mountains. And in one mountain, he says, you can have blessings, but the other mountain is cursings. You decide. The Matthew's gospel starts out with five blessings from God. I mean, I'm sorry, eight blessings from God in chapter 5, the Beatitudes. In chapter 23, how many woes do you happen just to guess how many might be? Yes, there are eight. Matthew wants you to get it. Jesus' ministry on these two mountains and these two chapters are giving Israel a choice. You can choose the blessings or you can choose the cursings. And Matthew wants to help you understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. The last mountain, the seventh one, of course, in Matthew's gospel is Matthew 28. We don't have the name of it, but this is the Great Commission mountain. This is the Mount of Ascension where Jesus went back to heaven and he had a mountain in Galilee that he had appointed them to be, meet him at. He gave them the Great Commission, and he ascended from that mountain. So you could almost say, 
in chapter 4 in Matthew's gospel that the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, which he was proven to be who he was in that revelation, when he was tempted of the devil, all the way to the very end and the last moments he's here on this planet, before he goes to heaven, it's all consumed with mountains and the revelation of who he is, all those seven mountains. With that in mind, let's take a look at our text a little more clearly, all right? Let me give you a little bit of a structure of our text. You can see it there for yourself. Look at verse number 22 and verse number 27 and verse number 31. They have the same little word. So we're gonna, if we were preaching this, or oh, I am actually, but more teaching it, but if we were doing a sermon, that would be a key for me. I'll just give you an example of how many points I'd make of this sermon because it says... Immediately, verse 22. Immediately, verse 27. Immediately, verse 31. Same word every time. And you would know that Matthew's dividing up this story into three segments, and he wants you to learn something about it. All right? He wants you to learn. And he also wants you to know this when you read this story. That when he asks, oh, you a little faith, it's not just generically, hey, every generic Christian. Or, he's not just saying, hey, have a big faith we got to sharpen a little bit because the Bible does. Because this is a story not for all the people who followed him, not for the crowds. He sent them away. Why? One of the reasons is, is he wants to show you this is a discipleship lesson. Verse 22 and verse 26 shows us that this was written and spoken to the disciples themselves. So we have to, if we're going to get what God really wants us to see out of it, when we make applications, you have to have the right interpretation first. So what we're going to find out is this. To be a disciple who really follows Jesus like God intended, you have to first know who God is, and then you have to also understand what it will take to actually follow him. Because here's the problem. Even though Jesus is God, and even though the number one thing that you wanted to be if you were a disciple was to follow him, it doesn't mean that your life is exempt from storms. Now tonight we've already shared them and you didn't even know it because we didn't classify them as such. When we talked about Bob and Carl and Gay Molnar and Kim, we talked about people who have storm stories. Isn't that most of why, most of the time, what we pray for? Right? Now you have to say, if you're a Christian and you follow Jesus and he's your rabbi, he's your Lord, and you're his disciple, let me just give you a hint. It will not mean that you don't go through storms. It will not mean that you don't go through severe storms. Because that's not what it means to follow Jesus. And so if you don't think that way up front, then you won't have the right expectations. So when you get the diagnosis from the doctor and it's been everybody else in life until it becomes your diagnosis, it could wreck your world. You know why? Because you haven't been expecting it. Because you've had, can I say it metaphorically, smooth sailing. The winds haven't been too boisterous. They haven't been torturing you. And you've been following Jesus and right now it's been pretty easy to follow him. But what will you do when he's not there and the storm is? The, the text wants to know. The text wants to know because Jesus wants to know what will you do in storms like this. Because remember what the storm is supposed to represent? It's the evil in the world. And it's all been backed by Satan. What will you do when he attacks you 
and makes your life miserable. What will you do? You will need this. Can I say it? Write it down. Here's what you need first and foremost, and you're going to not probably think this. This is the number one thing when you follow Jesus into a storm that you absolutely have to have a huge grip on. You know what it is? You have to know who God is. That's why we sang the song tonight. How great is our God? I want to ask you a question, and I want you to answer it over and over in your mind in the last few minutes we have left. What if the size of your faith is proportionate to the size of your God? What if it is? What if the size of your faith is proportionate to the size of your God? And that is by how you see him. There is nothing proportionate to God, truthfully, if you see him for who he really is. Peter's problem was not that he didn't know about Jesus, that he hadn't seen miraculous things. You remember, this is the second storm story in Matthew's gospel. He has been down this road before. Maybe that's why he gets out of the boat to some degree, but it still blows his mind and makes him terrified, right? Because he's still struggling. Give me th- let me tell you this. He's still struggling with who Jesus is and what that means for his storms. You ever feel that way? You ever feel that way that this isn't my first storm? <laughs> this isn't my first one. I've been in storms before. Do you ever get frustrated? Why isn't my faith any bigger? Why isn't my faith any stronger? Why am I not responding differently this time than the other times? Why is it that I let my anxiety and my fears control me? Because the revelation that you need most is the one that you need to be repeated in your life over and over again. What is the one that when you're in the storms that are going to calm all your fears? It's who God is. So let's take a look and answer that question. Ready? It's the one we need to ask, but we need to keep answering it. And let me give you some light on maybe what it really is and what Peter needed to see. There are two stories in this book, back to back. The story before ours is the feeding of the 5,000. And then you get Jesus walking on the water. Did you ever think about why Matthew may have put those back to back? The end of the story when Jesus, in chapter 14, feeds the 5,000, it says this, that he took the, the bread and the loaves and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. He blessed them and then he broke them. Where else in Matthew's gospel does Jesus take bread and bless it and break it and give it to his disciples? Yes, the Last Supper, but what else, but what does the Last Supper represent? His body, yeah, I mean, but what story is it telling from the Old Testament? Passover, right? So Passover is the meal, the blessing and the breaking of the bread and passing it out to everybody else, okay? And right after the Passover that took place in Exodus, what was the very next event? This is Exodus language story, right? So after the Passover, what's the very next big event that takes place? Escape from Egypt. How did they get out? What was the problem once they got out of Egypt in that event? Yes. So you had the Passover meal itself, 
followed by a water sea deliverance, right? So what do we have in our text? We have Jesus and his disciples having a Passover meal with everybody else, right? Followed by a water delivery event, right? So you have the story that he's trying to tell them. He's trying to tell them that he is greater than Moses. He is stronger than Moses. Now, in the Bible, let me show you a couple things. Remember when Peter gets afraid, he's walking on the water, and he comes up to Jesus, and he must be, get this, I don't know if you ever put this together, he must be very close to Jesus, I want to say maybe a pew or two. Why do I know that when he started to get afraid and sink that he was close to Jesus? Do you remember what he says? Lord, save me. And what did happen to him? Immediately, one of our key words, immediately, this, in other words, don't miss this point, right? What does Jesus do? He reaches out his hand like this and grabs him. So he was as close to Jesus probably on the water that you probably could close to get, and he was still really, really afraid. What does that tell you? That you could know all about him, that you could be close to him, and it doesn't do anything for you. Let me 21st centurize it, right? You can be at church, you can read your Bible, and have all those things going for you, and you get into a storm, and it doesn't help a bit. Why? Because it wasn't real enough in his life yet. His faith wasn't built around it yet. He hadn't been with Jesus quite enough yet, maybe, right? But what does Jesus do? He, I know you can't see this, but in the original it means, it says, he stretched out his hand and saved him. Have you read the Exodus story enough to know? How important is that line? What did God do when he saved Israel? Read the Bible text verbatim for yourself. Read Exodus 12. And the Bible says that night he stretched out his hand and he blew the winds so strong that the waters divided in half. And, by he, and, and then at the end of the, the paragraph it says, and he saved them all by his outstretched hand. What do you think Matthew's trying to tell them? What is he trying to say to them? There isn't any storm that you face. There isn't any red seas that you work through. Jesus is there, and he can stretch out his hand, and he can save you just like that. That's how close he is. Why? Who does that kind of stuff? What's the revelation? Who saves them by their outstretched arm? Who is it? God. God saves them. I haven't answered the maybe most obvious question. Why does Jesus go to them walking on the water? Have you read, ever read Job 9, 8? He is God, God is described as this, as the one who treads his feet on the water. There are numerous places in the Psalms where God is the one who controls all the sea and the winds and the waves, but there's only one or two places in all the Old Testament, and the only person that's described about having the ability to walk on the water is God 
Now, what do you think Matthew's driving at for all of us to see? Who walks on the water? Well, here's the revelation. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He's going to tell you what God is like. He is the God who can walk on water. He is the God that can stretch out his hand, and he can calm all the seas. In fact, when he just gets in the boat, it all stops. You see, he wants you to know that when he wasn't on the water, he was still in control. When he walked on the water, he was God, he was in control. When he was in the boat, it was still all under control the whole time, beginning to end. It was under control. See, do you believe that? No, I mean, do you really believe it? Because your response will be the measure of it. Peter didn't yet. He didn't fully get it. He didn't fully grasp it. You know why? Because he was so afraid that the Lord is right there and he cries out, Lord, save me, as if Jesus maybe wasn't thinking about doing it. (laughs) And Jesus says, and I would say with no little disappointment, Oh, you of little faith. Jesus believes, can I tell you tonight? Jesus believes that you can be like him. Peter gets a bad rap, and I've said this before in other sermons. He gets a bad rap, and everyone thinks that he's kind of ostentatious, that he's kind of the wild one of the group, always sticking his foot in his mouth. I really don't think that's true. Not from my reading of Scripture, because you forget, this is, these are discipleship stories. The number one thing that a Talmud, which is a disciple, wants to, from his rabbi is two things. I want to know what you know, and I want to do what you do. It was the number one thing. There were people, there are stories in the sages' books about disciples who would hide in their master's house just so they could watch them do things that he would normally not let them watch, just so that they could go home and do it just like he did. (laughs) That's a little bit crazy, far extreme. But, But you don't understand. When you sign up to follow your rabbi, you want to do and say everything like he did. So why in the world does Peter get out on the boat? He didn't do it because he was presumptuous and brash. He did it because he was the lead disciple. And he's telling everybody, this is what you do in the storms. And he got this part right. You do what your rabbi. If Jesus can walk on the water, what would you say? So can I. Right? So can I. Do you remember who these guys are? Jesus didn't get his disciples from Jerusalem area. He didn't get them from Judea. They weren't products of the temple and the, and the academy going on there. He didn't get anybody from there. Not even one The only one that was from that area was Judas, and you see how that turned out. They were from Galilee of the Gentiles. They were hicks from the sticks. They were guys who got B's, not A's. They weren't anybody. Jesus still believed that he could follow. Peter could be just like him. He did. Peter got out of the boat, and he followed his rabbi, and he knew this, that I, listen to this, I can be just like him even in a storm, even when I am afraid. In the very worst times in my life, when it's as dark out there and the winds and waves are torturous and I want to be ruled by emotions, Peter says this, I don't have to be. I can be like him. Now, did he fail? He did. 
But he did get out of the boat, didn't he? And he walked on the water for a little while. His faith wasn't strong. In fact, Jesus says it was little, but it wasn't nothing. Can I tell you this? Look at you tonight. Look yourself in the mirror. You say, who am I, really? Who am I? I mean, look at my life. I don't have this, and I don't have this degree, and I don't hold this job, and I don't have this kind of money, and I'm like this, and I have these problems. Can I tell you this? Look, he believes that you can be like him too. He does. And not just when everything's easy, not when it's just simple. He really believes that you can be like him Then he knows you're going to fail. In fact, can I tell you about Peter a little bit more? Jesus knew he was going to fail. And he says, after you fail, later on, when you come back and repent, strengthen your brethren. He knows you're going to fail at times. He knows you're going to blow it. But he still believes that you can be like him. He really does. Can I lastly tell you this? And I'll close. It will be fearful to follow Jesus in our culture. It will be. Because you will be under storms that are attacking you. You will be the only one at your job or your school that will stand for truth and right. You will be. And you may lose things and it may cost you things. But here's what disciples do. And lastly, did you catch the little two phrases? One is in verse 25 and the other is verse 29. It says, Jesus came to them walking on the water. And then it says this, and Peter came to Jesus walking on the water. Did you see when it's a rabbi-disciple thing, it goes both ways? Here's what the biggest problems I think we have. Is we love it when Jesus walks to us on the water, but we're not so hip about following him on the water. And a lot of us are never going to understand Really, the joys and the blessings of discipleships because we never really get out of the boat. We never do. We don't really want to follow him if it'll mean that or it'll cost me that or it'll mean that. We don't want to. We don't want to be uncool. We don't want to be everybody not look this way at me and I don't want this and I've got out so much at stake and I'm so close to this. And Now, see, that's what Jesus wants to know. See, I've come to walk on the water to you, but will you walk on the water to me. Is this a true formula? Listen, little faith, little God. Big faith, big God. See? The big, it's amazing the change between now and the book of Acts for Peter. You know what the difference was? Because God became so much bigger to him. So much bigger. You remember the last thing in Acts 12, Peter is sitting in a prison cell knowing that James, who he is very close to, has already been beheaded by the sword. And at the end of the Passover, Herod's going to come and grab him and take him next, and he will be executed publicly. He knows it. The angel of the Lord comes into his prison cell in, in Acts 12, and Peter said, Oh, finally, no. What was Peter doing? Sleeping. He's sleeping. Now, if you don't get the contrast, you get to real this is a big change. When Jesus needed him the most in the garden, what was Peter doing? Sleeping. That was selfish sleeping. This time he's in a jail cell, all these times later in Acts 12, and his life is on the line. He's sleeping. You know why? Because now he knows. He knows who Jesus really is. He knows how God, he's God. He knows how great he is and how powerful he is. And facing the storm in the prison cell that might cost him his life, he totally has changed in how he views it.
totally changed. He faced the storm completely different. That can be you. See, he did become like him. Do you remember Acts 4, what it said of Peter and John when they were talking to the religious leaders? They took note of this, that they had been with Jesus. He, he had become like his master. He talked like him. He acted like him. He did what he did. That's what it means to be a disciple. See, what about you? What about you? Will you follow Jesus? Will you be that kind of disciple? Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us to see a little bit more tonight about how Matthew's gospel has been put together, how you want us to see it, and how mountains are crucial, especially this one. Lord, help us Every day when we open the scriptures to have a mountaintop experience, oh, it may not be emotional or any of those things, but by that I mean this, that we see you for who you really are. And it wouldn't just be something we store away mentally. It wouldn't be just information. It would ex- we'd experience transformation. Because more than anything else as your disciples, we want to be like you. We want to know what you know, Master. That's why we read your word. We want to do what you did. I pray that for our group going to Panama, that there'd be a group of disciples to share with others what you have taught them, and they would do the things that you did, and that you'd bless it. Bless us at our vacation Bible schools. We're your disciples, Lord. Help us to teach others the gospel that you've taught us. The last mountain was going to all the world, and we're planning on doing that. Would you bless it? Oh, we've chosen blessing over cursing, Lord. I pray that you'd have your handy, heavy, kabod hand of blessing on us. Use us together as a church because both as individuals and collectively, we want more than anything else to become like you. Please use that to change the world forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.